Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we have been in his presence. Father, we are in trouble. This world is in trouble. This is not the way that you want it. Lord, as we prayed, may your spirit fall down like rain on all of us that we might be the witness. And so, Lord Jesus, that you would use us to help others who so desperately need you to see you. And Lord, uh, we, we do think about our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We do think about the non-believers there as well who have, I'm sure have lost hope. Lord, I pray that you, through your spirit, through our brothers and sisters, would, would display that hope that they can have in you. And Father, for our brothers and sisters also in Eritrea, Lord, uh, there's just a, a, a lot of um, uh, spiritual warfare going on there too. And so I pray, Lord, that you will enable our brothers and sisters there to, to have strong backs, to withstand the persecution that is going on right now with them. Lord, I pray for those who maybe even face martyrdom today, Lord, that you'll help them to face it and to realize, Lord, that they're going to see you soon. And that, Lord, you would help the families who have been affected. So, Lord, we're lifting this time up to you. We ask, God, that you would lead, that you would guide them. And now, Lord, we pray as we turn our attention to your word. Lord, this is your Torah. This is your teaching about how we are to live. Thank you, Lord, for it. I pray that you open up our hearts, minds, that we may know you better, that we may know ourselves better, and that we may know how to interact in your world. In Jesus' name. So I have a question this morning as we begin. And for those who are following the manuscript closely, you're not allowed to answer, okay? And the question is this, what did we talk about last week? Well, the central idea was that God's people would have a thankful heart. Now I say this, not to embarrass anybody who forgot what it was about last week, but to simply highlight for some, not me, that would label a drawback of going through books of the Bible passage by passage. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the best way to go through Scripture is to do this passage by passage because we deal with the whole counsel of the Word of God. We're not allowed to skip any part of it. Now, we talked about genocide in that week, a couple of weeks ago. Now, if my approach to preaching was all topical messages, you know, just kind of pick something out and just preach about it, then more than likely, and you as well, would never touch the issue of genocide, would you? As well as many other unpleasant things in Scripture. Just kind of skip over those. Now, this is what we pastors often do. We avoid the really tough things of Scripture, and then we retreat into things that are a little bit more comfortable to talk about and to give the congregations. And in my opinion, that is to our detriment. Obviously. Topical sermons and even series like our Christmas series that we have every year and maybe even standalone messages when we have our fifth Sunday for our communion time to make it a little bit more special. I think those are good. But it makes our spirit weak, in my opinion, to have a steady spiritual diet of topical messages. There's another drawback in preaching the Bible through passage by passage that is we tend to forget the context that we're talking about on a given Sunday. How many of us remember the very first message in Deuteronomy about 30 weeks ago? You know, it's pretty tough to remember all that. And that too is, I think, to our detriment as far as 
the context. We kind of forget where we are in the Scripture. Because rarely can a passage of Scripture be treated by itself without the rest of Scripture informing it. And this is why I at least make the attempt to catch us up before we dive into the passage in front of us. And today is no exception. And so I may not have made things crystal clear as we were going through Deuteronomy getting started. And so I want to put it on the table now. And that is simply this. The entire book of Deuteronomy is a collection of Moses' last words. Some learned people say that the entire book was the last day that Moses was on earth. If we were actually there to hear Moses back in the day, there would be no break between what we call chapter 8 and our passage for today. But now we've had 168 hours between chapter 8 and today. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of tough to follow. But today in Deuteronomy chapter 9, 1 to 14, we will see Moses give further instruction, the Torah, in the ways of the Lord to his people. And as we know, Torah means the teaching of God's ways to God's people. And central to this passage today is the Lord's continued teaching about the condition of Israel's hearts, proud and stubborn. Can anybody resonate with this? Remember in chapter 8, Moses declared that the Lord humbled them and he was training them to know that he was all that they needed. And after Moses reminded the people of the blessings of Yahweh and then the promise of many more blessings, he pressed upon them this grave warning. Don't go after other gods, because if you worship them and go after them, I will expel you from my land, because my land that I'm giving you is still my sacred space. And so again, in our passage for today, the Lord through Moses has one thing on his mind to teach the people. And I say the number one with emphasis. There's a reason for that. The message is don't be stubborn against the ways of the Lord. And we will see how the Lord uses two things in this passage as well, demonstrating a profound lesson of grace and mercy. And of all things, this lesson that I'm going to be sharing is wrapped up in the two tablets of stone that the Lord gave Moses, upon which he wrote the summary statement of the Torah. And we call that the Ten Commandments. And we will even see how the number three comes into play here, in that how the Lord overwhelms the obstacles Israel had raised in the past as reasons, or even more accurately, as excuses as to why Israel could not go into the promised land four decades earlier. And so the title for my message is pretty clumsy, but it's the only thing I can think of, and you're stuck with it, all right? And the message is titled, By the Numbers, 3, 1, 2. So again, in our passage, Deuteronomy 9, 1 to 14. So if you don't have your Bibles out, uh, please open them up. We will see the number three in verses 1 to 3 in this passage. As Moses, again, deals with what Israel considers obstacles to prevent them from taking the land. In verses 4 to 7, Moses will expose Israel to their stubbornness, along with the pride accompanying this sin. Again, the number one issue in these verses. And in verses 8 to 14, we will see how the two tablets of stone serve as incredible, incredible object lessons of grace and mercy toward his people. 
So let's talk about the number three in Deuteronomy 9, 1 to 3. Hear, O Israel, you're to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, white space, because you met them, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So what were the three obstacles that Moses mentioned that would make crossing the Jordan River and living in the land of promise difficult, according to the Israelites? Well, it's great and mighty nations. For one, seven nations to be exact. These were the nations that God told Israel to go wipe out. Every man, every woman, every kid, and even the animals. Wipe them all out. Obstacle two, great and fortified cities, such as Jericho. And that was the first city that Israel encountered when they crossed over. And we who know the story know how well those fortifications kept God's people out of that city, right? Remember that? And obstacle three, great and tall Anakim. Remember who they were? According to the worldview back then, alluded to in Genesis 6, the Anakim were evil personified. They were the spawn of the watchers, the sons of God who had sexual relations with human women, whose goal was to thoroughly corrupt humanity. Now, Moses didn't say how many Anakim were in the land. And scripture gives us in various places the various locations of where they actually lived. But it makes one wonder just how widespread the Anakim were in that land and the influence, the evil influence that they had. And so what makes these obstacles that Moses listed so interesting here is that these were the exact same reasons, more properly called excuses, that the spies gave when they came back and they scoped out the land 40 years prior. And as a result, the people became terrified and refused to go in and obey the Lord. But now, four decades later, what did Moses remind the people of? The Lord will go before them to confront the seven nations plus the Anakim, eight nations as it were. And Yahweh will help them in exactly how many ways? Three ways, three ways. He will go before his warriors as a consuming fire with devastating ferocity. The Lord promises he will destroy the nations. That's the second way. And the third way, he will subdue them. Now again, Israel has to go wield the sword, but God is going to do the work. And so what do we make of this? Israel emphatically gave the Lord three reasons. Again, labeled as excuses as to why they refused to take the land. But what did God do? He gave them three reasons of his own as to why their reasons were invalid. Now, God basically said, it's going to be difficult, but you can do this. But the issue was not one of their ability anyway, was it? It was one of trusting Yahweh, trusting the Lord. He commanded them to engage the battle, but the Lord would be the one to get the victory. 
And I think there just might be an application in here somewhere for us. There is no obstacle too great to prevent the Lord's people from accomplishing what he wants. Isn't that true? No sin, no, no wars, nothing. The Lord can get the victory if we will cooperate with him. For example, as individual followers of the Lord Jesus, think of the spiritual warfare that you and I are involved with on a continual basis. But who lives in us? The Holy Spirit lives within us. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is the third person of the Trinity. God himself lives within us. It's his spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And there is no sin stronger than the Holy Spirit. Would you agree with that? No sin. And so when we think about, well, I just can't get past this sin. I just can't get past this habit. Wrong. We can by his spirit, by his power. And what we do, we appeal to the Lord when we're in temptation. We seek his help and he will secure the victory for us. When tempted, let's immediately go into the battle and let's direct our focus of all of our inner being toward this temptation. Using the word of God, using prayer, victory is assured if we do this. The battle is real. We know this. Some of these some of these lifelong sins that we struggle with, they're real. By his spirit, we have everything that we need to engage the battle and win. Praise be to the Lord. The question is, how badly do we want to win? How badly do we want these sins out of our lives? I think of the church engaged in spiritual warfare as well, all around the world. We just prayed for our brothers and sisters in several places today. They're engaged not just spiritual warfare, but physical in some places. Jesus promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Remember, the gates are defensive mechanisms in place. In other words, the gates will eventually give way as the church of Jesus continues to pound on them. Well, how do we pound on them? Little by little. And what we do, we take that authority away from the kingdom of darkness. Every person who receives eternal life is no longer under the dominion of darkness. If we're in Christ this morning, we're no longer under that dominion. Isn't that true? Paul says this in in Colossians. The gates of hell are powerless to prevent a son or daughter of God from leaving the kingdom of darkness. The Lord Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit into the world. And he is the greatest evangelist ever. Isn't that right? He is right now convicting every non-Christian of sin and righteousness and judgment all throughout the world. And as followers of Christ, we have faith in this truth. We are convinced that whenever we plant a spiritual seed, the Holy Spirit will use it as he continues his convicting work in the non-believer. In other words, nothing is ever wasted. When we are engaged with a non-believer, nothing is ever wasted. How many of you have ever thought, well, you know what? I witnessed to this person and I've blown it. They just didn't hear me or, or I didn't do very well and I could have said this and I could have said that. But God never wastes anything, does he? Because he's already working in that person's life. 
But who can adequately share the gospel anyway? Can anybody really share it the way it should be shared? I don't think so. No intellect, no voice is enough to bring a person into the kingdom of Christ. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that that can happen. And we in the church of Jesus Christ, as we live the new life, as we loyally keep the ways of the Lord, the world is watching and the world sees this. As I asked last week, how many of us really believe that the Lord's ways are the best ways to live? Do we really believe that? Now we say yes, but when it comes to choices, do we take those choices? I want to live this way. Or I want to live the Lord's way. How often do we take this way? If we really believe that the Lord's ways are the best way, why do we go over here? See, our lifestyle lends to the credibility of the convicting work in the life of non-Christians. The more faithful that we as brothers and sisters are living out the ways of the Lord in front of them, the more powerful the gospel can work in the lives of non-Christians. We give the gospel as the Lord gives opportunity. And when a person comes from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the gates of hell have no more authority over that person. So in a sense, we are beating the gates of hell from the inside. See, it's not a frontal assault on the gates of hell. It's not a frontal assault at all. Because a frontal assault often means that we're up to our armpits trying to change the culture. That's not why we're here. We are here to make disciples. That's the only job Jesus gave us to do. Amen. Now, it's a monumental task to bring people, precious souls from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The stakes are so much higher than culture change. But as Israel pointed out the three obstacles to Yahweh, he promised to take on those obstacles. Israel certainly had a role to play. But Yahweh is the ultimate victor. Now let's turn our attention to what amounts to numbers 3 and 1 in verses 4 to 6. So 4 to 6. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess his land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. Kind of get the the drift here. For you are a stubborn people. Did you catch the number three in this? In a phrase, not your righteousness. It sort of goes along with the territory, doesn't it? See, in chapter 8, Moses said that Yahweh dealt with Israel and their proud heart. So the temptation would be, wouldn't it, that when the warriors of Israel would gain the victory, they would say, hey, I'm okay, I'm, I'm, I'm better than them. I'm more righteous than them. That's why I defeated my enemy. And I believe that is called a little moral superiority. After all, it was Yahweh, though, the only true God, possessing absolute purity, 
who sent Israel on his errand to have them eradicate the wickedness in his sacred space. It was Yahweh that set his affection upon Israel, his people. They're pretty privileged. And later on in Deuteronomy, we will actually read that the Lord was going to raise Israel above all the nations, above all the nations, if they would faithfully follow him. Now that sure could feed into Israel's pride, couldn't it? Or how about your pride or my pride? But Moses quickly burst their bubble. It's not your righteousness that you're going to win, but it's because of the wickedness. You're not so good, but they are really bad, in other words. That's why I'm sending you to displace these people. Moses is telling the people, don't think you're all that. Because the truth is, neither Israel nor any nation can claim righteousness, can they? Can we? However, Israel could do righteousness if they were careful to follow the ways of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 6.25, he says, And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. However, such was not the case with Israel. You know, they had a pretty bad habit of not rendering obedience to the Lord. Moses declared to them, you are stubborn. In verse 7, he said, you are rebellious against the Lord. Ouch. But as Israel's leader, Moses had the loving responsibility of proclaiming the truth to them, exposing their heart to them for what it really was. Isn't that what love does? And this is what we're to do as well, as Grace United, as the body of Christ. That's why we come together, develop the relationships. We learn how to trust one another. We share our hearts and our shortcomings with each other. And then, speaking the truth in love, we help one another to see our sin and to be right there to help our brother, our sister, to overcome it for them and for all of us together. And that's part of living together in love and unity, isn't it? That's one of our tasks. We are to help one another to become more like Jesus. And my question for all of us is simply this. How are you doing in this area? Are you willing to take the risk to be authentic in trusting your heart to your brother, to your sister? Moses loved his people, and that was obvious. He gained their trust, and he was able then to tell it like it was. How are we doing? You know, there was something else at work here. In verse 5, Moses tells them that the Lord is sending Israel into the land as instruments of judgment because of the sin of the seven nations. And that was to fulfill a promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Way back in the book of Genesis, God was establishing a covenant with Abraham. And he gave Abraham a timeline as to what was going to happen to his descendants. They were going to descend into slavery. He was going to deliver them. And then he was going to return them to the land of promise. And all this was to take place over a period of about 400 years. And then the Lord says this to Abraham in Genesis 15, 16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God gave the Amorites, representative of these seven nations, 
400 years to repent, but they did not repent. That's why God was sending Israel into the land to get rid of them. And 40 years in the wilderness brought Israel into the land. Remember, they had a delay. They were supposed to go into the land right away, but 40 years delay in the wilderness brought Israel to right about, you guess it, 400 years. Perfect timing. Now, God knew what was going to happen, didn't he? And so far, we see numbers 1 and 3. Now let's look at number 2, found in verses 8 to 14. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. And then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, he said to Moses, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So here's Moses reminding the people of their sordid history. They indeed were rebellious. They were stubborn. They provoked the Lord to anger often. And nowhere was that more evident than when they were at Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. Moses reminds them that the Lord wanted to destroy them. In Exodus 32, the scripture tells us that Moses prayed for the people and the Lord relented. In other words, for changed his mind. Isn't that amazing? What powerful things that prayer can do. Prayer is something we all need to be more involved with. As Greg had mentioned earlier, all these different things that we can do prayer-wise if we really believe in the absolute power of prayer. But we pray more. Then Moses gives the people what seems to be a minor detail. Two tablets. He mentions it a couple times. Did you get it? At the end of the 40 days on the mountain, the Lord gave Moses those tablets. Two tablets. Written by his finger, the ten words. The ten commandments. The summary statement of the Torah. But why the detail? Why two tablets? Why make a big deal of that? Well, it's obvious, so we think. It's a very popular thing to understand that one of the tablets had four commandments on them. Our duty as, as God's people, or, or Israel's duty as God's people, to render to God those things that he wanted, like don't have any of the gods before me, don't bow down and worship them, keep the Sabbath day holy, those kinds of things. And then on the other tablet, it was the duties of the Lord's people to one another. This is how we oftentimes view this and how we interpret it. However, there's far more than meets the eye here. What I just share with you is I'm convinced that that's an incorrect view of these tablets, these two tablets. 
for Yahweh wrote the entire Ten Commandments on one tablet and the entire Ten Commandments on the other tablet. And there's a reason for that. Two reasons, as a matter of fact. First, it's the amount of writing on them. Because there were not just two spaces, there were four spaces. Exodus 32.15 says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Now he's getting ready to describe this. Tablets that were written on both sides, the front and the back, they were written. And second, I haven't mentioned this in in a while, but what is going on here in the entire book of Deuteronomy is that Deuteronomy is being laid out in what's called a suzerain vassal treaty format. Now, we know what suzerain is. It's the overwhelming, powerful king who wants to have a covenant relationship with his vassals, his vastly inferior conquered people. It was a suzerain who created the treaty. It was this kind of treaty that was very common back in Moses' day. Everybody did that when they were making treaties. And it was this treaty that the book of Deuteronomy is patterned after. Now, an important part of the treaty was the paperwork, if you will. Okay, For every one of these treaties, there were two copies that were written. One for the suzerain and one for the vassals. So that both parties can understand what they were getting themselves into. Now, with this in mind, let's see what's really going on here. Moses was on the mountain with the Lord. Forty days, forty nights. This was the suzerain that Moses was addressing. And Moses experienced a miracle, by the way. He was up there for 40 days. No food. Jesus, too, had 40-day fast, too, right? We're in the middle of our fasting emphasis, right? Have you ever had a 40-day fast? (laughs) Moses did. And he had more than one, by the way, and we'll talk about that later. But that's not the miracle. That's difficult, but the miracle is he had no water for 40 days. I mean, after three days, we get kind of parched, don't we? Moses didn't have any water for 40 days. But while on the mountain, the Lord gave Moses all kinds of details about the Torah and especially about how to construct the tabernacle and all the furniture. And the last thing the Lord did to close out their time together was that he, as a suzerain, was writing with his finger two tablets, two copies of the summary statement of the Torah, the Ten Commandments. Now then, what do you suppose was happening at the exact moment the Lord was drawing up this treaty? What was happening at the foot of the mountain? God's people were at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they were busy doing stuff. They were busy committing sexual sin. They were busy committing spiritual adultery by worshiping a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods which brought you out of Egypt. Let that sink in. Yahweh was writing the, the summary statement. The, the, the covenant and the people were already breaking at that exact moment. The sinful party was going on right at the time this was happening. As the Lord finished writing with his finger on the tablets, establishing his covenant of love and loyalty and deliverance and protection with Israel, his ears heard the unthinkable. 
let's now have a feast to the Lord. And it wasn't Yahweh they were talking about. Then scripture says, they rose up to play. Tell me, what should have happened? What should Yahweh have done? Smash those copies. The Lord should have destroyed the people. For his people were spiritually cheating on him. But he did not do that. He was definitely angry. He told Moses, let me alone. I want to destroy these people. But what did Moses not do? Moses disobeyed the Lord. Because Moses didn't let him alone, did he? He begged the Lord not to destroy the people. And the Lord did not do it. What a magnificent display of mercy and patience and holy boldness in the part of Moses. But now let's step back a little bit further and get a bigger picture. The God who thundered out the commandments, the one who restrained himself from destroying his people, also declared his salvation and deliverance to them right before this, about 40 days prior. Because he said at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, and we know this, he said, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, do these things. Now, let's take another step back, a bigger picture. The one who declared his salvation and deliverance on Israel is also the omniscient God of the universe. The one who knows everything there is to know about everything. In other words, before he created Adam and Eve, Yahweh knew that his people were going to commit spiritual adultery against him at the very moment he was signing the document establishing the treaty with his people. He established the treaty and he did not destroy them in spite of what his people did. And my friends, is this not the most amazing display of grace and mercy and patience? In short, the Lord knew exactly what he was getting when he saved his people. He was not taken by surprise by the wicked actions of his people. Amazingly, he established the covenant with his people that he might show how good he is. Now fast forward thousands of years to our day. The Lord's attitude and actions toward his people, followers of Christ, is exactly the same as it was with his people at the foot of Mount Sinai. The truth is, the Lord knows exactly what he's getting. He knew, he knew exactly what he got when he saved you, right? He knew exactly what he got when he saved me. Nothing takes him by surprise. And how we need to remember that God, Yahweh, lives in the past. He lives in the present. And he lives in the future. The totality of every one of our lives is right there in front of him. All of it. Everything. And he is still offered salvation to you and to me. I've asked this question before, but it definitely bears repeating. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Let that sink in. The Lord never looks at you and me and says, I didn't know you were going to do that. I didn't know that was in you. The worst thing you and I have ever done. He knows it all together. It's the same with our thoughts, our orientations, our inclinations, everything about us. He knows. 
And even the things that we would say and do if we were afforded an opportunity. But God knows what we could do, but we don't for whatever reason. He knows it all. He still offered his salvation. And he says, I know what I'm getting. But here's the bottom line. Salvation means to be salvaged, does it not? The Lord, knowing full well who we are, takes us from the junkyard of sin, builds into us the very character of Christ, and we will be exactly like him when he is done with us. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that amazing? And so, my brothers and sisters, in the fact of the light that God knows us absolutely, let me offer us a challenge, okay? Let's be done with committing the sin of unbelief. Sin of unbelief. How many of us are guilty of the sin of unbelief? It's my conviction that we are more guilty of the sin of unbelief than we could possibly know. You might be thinking, how can that be? How can that be, Pastor? You don't know me completely. But I do know by what many people have said throughout the years. Many Christians, very sincere, ask things like this. Unbelief is expressed this way. We're talking about truly saved people now. Lord, how can you forgive me for after everything I've done? See, we are all capable of the worst things that human beings can do, can't we? None of us are beyond X, Y, Z. None of us. Human nature knows no bounds. True? And when we so thoroughly violate our conscience, we wonder how in the world the Lord, who is absolutely pure, can find in his heart to forgive us. Can anybody resonate with this? Here's another way we express the sin of unbelief. And I'm emphasizing the word sin. Lord, how can you forgive me again for my sin? All these things I've done, I do it over and over again. How can you forgive me again for this? Well, here's the glorious, liberating truth of the matter. God is not a God of the second chance. He's a God of as many chances as it takes. And why? Why is he that way? Precisely and only because of the blood of Jesus who shed his blood on our behalf. God does not forgive us because he's nice, but because he's just, and he's the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus went to the cross, and when he went to the cross, all of our sin was placed upon him. Isn't that right? Do we believe this? I mean, really believe this? So why do we say, Lord, how can you forgive me? Is that not the sin of unbelief? What did God do with his people as they were having a fit for themselves on the foot of the mountain? Finishing up writing the treaty, expressing his love and affection for them. He gave both of those copies to Moses. And it was Moses who broke the copies, right? In spite of their wickedness, Yahweh still wanted to have a covenant relationship with his people. That is profound grace. That's unspeakable mercy. And do I have to remind us? This is Old Testament we're talking about here. How much greater are things now, though, that Christ has come? The absolute, complete, perfect fulfillment of all that the Lord wants of a covenant between himself 
and his people. And so what do we do when we as followers of Jesus sin? We go to God in prayer, taking along the promise of 1 John 1, 9. I call that the Christian's bar of soap. 1 John 1, 9. Recite it with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? This is a promise given to his people. Again, a promise. He doesn't break his promise. We know this. You know, when I was a young Christian, way back in the day, I hung around a bunch of guys who, we were pretty serious about our walk with the Lord. But we kept beating ourselves up. We were so serious that anytime we had a little sin or a big sin or any sin in between, we beat ourselves up. Lord, how can I do this again and again and again? And I don't know when the change took place, but we began at one point simply to take God at his word. First John 1 John 1.9. We decided to stop beating ourselves up after we confessed our sin and then we just got on with living the restored and renewed relationship and fellowship with the Lord. And we describe the process this way. Fess and press. Say it with me. Fess and press. But what that means is simply this. We confess our sin with the attitude of repentance. That's the fess part. Now, what does confession mean? It doesn't mean you're groveling on the ground, although sometimes, you know, if the weight of our sin really is that way, we do. But we don't have to do that. We do express sorrow for our sin, yes. But confession simply means this, to say the same thing as. I agree with God over this. It's an open, honest admission to the Lord of what I did. I'm to blame. It's not my friend. It's not my family. It's not my ancestors. It's not anybody else. It's me who sinned. God, I'm to blame with this. And then when I confess in the proper way, basically it's like this. I confess it with the attitude that says, Lord, at this moment right now, because I don't know what's happening in five minutes, but at this moment right now, I endeavor to never do this again. That's the attitude. And when I confess in the proper way, then the Lord does his work and cleanses me from how much unrighteousness. All, all. And with a renewed fellowship in the Lord, then I press on. I forget what lies behind. of Even what I had just done, I forget it. Why? Because God's forgotten it already, hasn't he? Doesn't mean that God's got amnesia. It just means he doesn't treat me as if I have sinned there. And then I'm grateful for yet another episode of his forgiveness and cleansing in my life. And I press on with a renewed fellowship with him. Now, it's a simple matter of taking God at his word and trusting in his unbreakable promise. Now, of course, the key to all this, again, is to believe that 1 John 1, 9 is as true as John 3, 16. My brothers and sisters, every time we sin, we have an opportunity 
to quickly get that sin out of the way so that we can press on and have a renewed fellowship with our Lord, regardless of how we feel. I think sometimes what we do, we go before the Lord only after we've beaten ourselves up sufficiently. I've got to punish myself for my sin. But who took my punishment? And when I start beating myself up over my sin, what am I saying? It's not enough. He doesn't require us to beat ourselves up. But he does invite us to have him clean us up. And so my question for all of us is this. Will you take up the challenge? The fess and press challenge? The next time you sin, confess it with the attitude of repentance and then forget it and press on to a renewed fellowship with the Lord. And you might be thinking, Pastor, you don't understand. <laughs> I'm, I, I've got all these things that I'm dealing with and I sin all the time. What if I sin five minutes after I've just confessed? And what if I sin the same sin five minutes after I just confessed? What do you do with that? Well, the answer is found in the truth of 1 John 1 9. He is faithful. He's faithful, isn't he? And he's just. His promise has not changed between the five minutes between times I've sinned, right? Has his promise changed? Absolutely not. And so what do we do? I think I heard Donna say, we go to him again, the same way as we did five minutes ago. Don't believe the lie that the Lord will ever tire of you confessing the same sin over and over again. Don't believe the lie. Just like with Israel, Yahweh knew what he was getting when he saved you. None of your sins or my sins ever have or ever will take him by surprise. So stop beating yourself up. When you sin, fess and press on. Now, there's so much more we could say regarding this amazing passage. But in the words of one of my heroes, Abe Hamilton, the clock is so disrespectful. So we had to leave things right there. We're going to pick it up next week with the rest of the story of Moses. He was telling about the golden calf. So we're going to finish that next week. But the bottom line is simply this. Yahweh continues to show his people infinite love and mercy and grace. And once again, the Lord does not change. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. His way, his heart, his attitude toward those who are true Christians is exactly the same as he had toward Israel. And even better now, right? Because the Torah of God is written where? On our hearts. Our sins are completely forgiven, aren't they? Now and forever. And the Holy Spirit is alive and well in us, empowering us to do his will. The Israelites did not have that, but we do. It's been said that Paul's letter to the Romans is the greatest writing in the New Testament. It's also been said that the greatest chapter in, the, in, in Romans is chapter 8. And so what I want to do is I want to finish out this so we can be encouraged and comforted with these wonderful, inspired words from arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived. Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge to God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. He's praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors who loved us, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things to come, or things present, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please pray. Our King. How could we ever give you enough praise? You are so worthy of our worship. And sometimes words just don't do justice. We praise you for your marvelous grace. Totally undeserved. Because, Lord, we are sinners at heart. Thank you with the new covenant, though, Lord. You've changed our hearts. You've given us a heart of flesh that's responsive to your ways. And Lord, as we, as we saw today, a very powerful illustration of how merciful and gracious you are toward people, toward your people whom you saved. Lord, you were writing out that, that covenant even as your people were sinning against you. What an amazing thing. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. And the only way that we can express our thanks and praise is that we would actually do what you tell us out of a heart of gratitude, out of a heart of love. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us who know you as Lord and Savior, that today, Lord, would be a day that we would renew in our hearts and minds just a a, a warm affection for you and that we would do the things you ask us to do because we love you, because you love us first. Now, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we engage in two more activities of worship, our singing and our giving, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do these things again because you're so worthy of it. And we thank you, Father, for what you are doing, what you have done in us because of your word today. May your spirit take these things and seal them to our hearts that we may serve you well today in all of our, in all of our days. In Jesus' name.